break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out. Very happy to be back with you here, 30th of August, 2021. Plenty for you here on the show as we always do. We're going to be talking about how some states are slowing and ending elements of their COVID-19 reporting. We're going to be talking about the unfolding humanitarian disaster in Yemen. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we're going to be talking about a sneaky tax cut for the rich. Democrats are sticking into their $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill. Well, as Congress pushes towards the September 15th, self-imposed deadline to finish writing its $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill, the ultimate question of U.S. politics, how you going to pay for it, certainly looms large. And there are a range of options out there of how to pay for it, but what we really want to talk about today, specifically in the midst of all the discussion about how Republicans and right-wing Democrats don't want to raise taxes at all, is that, flying below the radar, the Democratic Party is united, it seems, on giving one very clear tax break to millionaires and billionaires living in the richest states. This tax cut is referred to as the repeal of the cap on the state and local taxes, That's the SALT deduction there. The 2017 Trump tax cut put a cap of $10,000 on that deduction. So what does that mean? Well, on your taxes, if you take itemized deductions, you can write off up to $10,000 of property taxes and state income taxes. Before the 2017 bill, you could write off the whole value of these things. So in other words, you got a break on your federal taxes from your local property tax and your state income tax. Now, the deduction previously had been seen as something of a deal between localities, states, and the federal government. States and localities could take a bit of the sting, quote unquote, out of raising income or property taxes since it results in a break on the federal taxes. The arrangement primarily benefited states where property and income taxes tended to be not rock bottom, which in modern times have been mainly Democratic states where the labor movement and other progressive currents have been able to drive social spending higher. So in 2017, the cap was seen essentially as a Republican attack on Democratic-run states by making it more expensive for those states to run their government, more or less, by making it much more difficult politically to expand social spending. Now, technically, it wasn't any more difficult to expand social spending since rich people already don't pay their fair share in taxes at the state, local, or federal level. But that, in many ways, was the best part of the SALT deduction for the rich. It's pitched as tax relief. It creates the impression that somehow the rich are being soaked by the combined state and local taxes, when in fact, they aren't coming anywhere close to paying their fair share. Literally every state in America and the federal tax code are regressive. That means that you and I often pay a larger share of our income to all taxes than billionaires do. 
but by claiming a cap on SALT deductions creates an undue burden on blue state taxpayers. It makes it seem like taxes are somehow too high there when it's not that they're too high. It's just that the tax burden is distributed unfairly. Either way, the rich get off with big tax deductions while looking like they're paying more in local and state taxes than they really are. So Democrats are teeing up the repeal as part of the budget reconciliation effort as something designed to help states and localities. But in reality, it's a way to soothe the nerves of the ultra rich who hate paying anything close to their fair share in taxes. To give you a sense of who this really helps, all you have to know is 62% of the benefits would go to the richest 1% if the cap was repealed. And 86% of the benefits would go to the richest 5%. So 86% of the benefits go to the richest 5%. But here's an equally interesting way to look at it. One Democratic proposal on the table to pay for the budget reconciliation bill is to raise the top marginal income tax rate to 39.6% from the current 37%. The Department of Treasury analysis details that this would raise $131 billion by 2026. Repealing the SALT deduction would cost the U.S. government $101 billion in 2022 alone. So that's what, roughly $400 billion by 2026. So as you can see, the increase in the SALT deduction actually cancels out the increase in taxes paid by the richest people, at least in terms of income taxes, by quite a lot. In fact, it gives you a sense of how skewed the tax is towards the ultra-rich. Some rich people will ultimately be unable to write off their entire value of the increase in federal income taxes if the SALT cap is repealed, and all of them will save vast sums of money. Many people with hundreds of millions and billions of dollars could almost certainly save millions of dollars in federal tax payments this way, if you assume they're paying millions of dollars in state taxes and that these giant mansions that they have have significant amounts of money in property taxes. The Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy has also noted how the impact of a salt cap repeal is racially stratified, noting, quote, In total, more than two-thirds of tax cuts under the SALT cap repeal will flow to white families with incomes over $200,000 per year, a group accounting for less than 7% of families overall. In 2022 alone, the SALT cap repeal would amount to a $67 billion windfall for upper-income white families. Now, the thing you have to remember here is that the vast majority of billionaires in this country do live in states most affected by the SALT cap, so really... I know I've said this many times, but you have to underscore it. This really, truly is a tax break for the richest people on the planet. Now, it is true that Democrats are proposing other potential tax increases, so it's not like this is a get-out-of-jail-free card here, but it really is amazing that rather than ask the richest people on earth to pay a fair share of their income towards taxes at the local, state, and federal level, the entire burden of tax policy making, no matter how important the programs at stake are, is organized around making sure that the richest people on the planet do not pay their fair share of local, state, and federal taxes. Yemen has been mainly pushed off the nightly news and the international headlines in the print media. Indeed, eight years after the war began there, for many, it just seems like it's no longer quote-unquote news to hear terrible information coming out of the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula. But that does not mean that the suffering is ended. According to UNICEF, one child is dying every 10 minutes in Yemen. Henrietta Four, the executive director of UNICEF, stated, quote, The war in Yemen has created the largest humanitarian crisis in the world, one made worse by the public health and socioeconomic consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Now, according to UNICEF statistics, 1.6 million children in Yemen are internally displaced because of the violence. 11.3 million children need humanitarian assistance to survive. 2.3 million children are acutely malnourished and nearly 400,000 children under five are suffering from severe acute malnutrition and at risk of death. More than 10 million children, by the way, do not have appropriate access to health care in Yemen. On the same token, Martin Griffiths, who's the UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief, stated, quote, Today, about 5 million people are just one step away from succumbing to famine and the diseases that go with it. And the war is continuing to grind on. Last week, in a major attack, the Houthi movement killed 30 and wounded 60 soldiers from the Saudi-led coalition in an assault on a military base deep in what is supposed to be Saudi-held territory using a combination of drones and missiles. The war in Yemen is, to a degree, in a stalemate. The Houthis cannot be defeated. And this is really because the Saudi-led coalition has very limited backing in the country, mainly just several groups with the presence in the southern part of the country. The Houthis, however, swept to power just before the war because they built a legitimate coalition with at least a plurality, if not a majority of support there in the country. So the war is essentially a colonial imposition by Saudi Arabia and its Western allies who have enough money, bombs and mercenaries paid for by the Saudis to not totally end the war, but to make sure that it remains pretty much perpetually in a stalemate, grinding on, killing many, many people. The Saudis launched the war purely because they didn't like the politics of the Houthis. So in other words, the world's worst humanitarian disaster is only happening because Saudi Arabia feels that it has the right to dictate the government of its neighbor. And because the so-called international community is so tight with the Saudis, they are at best just not saying much of anything at all. And at worst, like in the case of the U.S. and the United Kingdom, actively facilitating the war effort. The U.S. claims to have ended combat cooperation, but hasn't yet stated what that means, which means they're still deeply involved. And the U.K. has continued to openly back the Saudi-led coalition. They've actually placed troops on the ground this summer in one part of southern Yemen, allegedly as part of some sort of investigation into an attack on an Israeli tanker. But you can see the mission creep element of that as well. The United States and the United Kingdom could easily bring the war to a close since the Saudis could not fight without their assistance in resupply and in targeting for airstrikes. But they choose not to because it's part of the broader struggle to deny Iran any influence in the region. Now, how close the Houthis even are to Iran is a matter of dispute. But either way, from a PR perspective, the so-called Houthi threat, quote unquote, plays an important role in creating the image of an aggressive expansionist Iran that serves Western interest in the region. So there you have it. The world's worst humanitarian crisis, set to continue, because the U.S., U.K., and Saudi Arabia and friends want to control the politics of every country in the region, regardless of what their people may want or what it may cost them. In states across the country, state officials are starting to very slow down or stop reporting a range of COVID-19 information. Georgia recently stopped posting updates on COVID-19 cases in prisons and long-term care facilities. Florida is now reporting COVID cases, deaths, and hospitalizations once a week instead of every day, which they were previously doing. Nebraska has also moved to weekly reporting. So has Iowa and Michigan has gone down to three days a week. Florida also, by the way, has stopped recording information about COVID-19 in prisons back in June. In fact, now only Alaska is giving regular updates on COVID cases in prisons. 
The impact of fewer statistics during a surge in the pandemic is fairly clear. It makes it harder to identify trends and then, of course, developed and formed public health measures. And the prison example is quite instructive here because many people have noted and research by the Prison Policy Initiative has detailed how prisons have been super spreader sites throughout the pandemic. The Prison Policy Initiative, for instance, notes that, quote, between California, Florida and Texas alone, mass incarceration contributed to over a quarter million new cases of COVID-19, about 20 percent of new cases in those states between May 1st and August 1st of 2020. And in Florida, up until that August 1st deadline of 2020, 92,981 cases, 92,981 cases of COVID-19 are linked to mass incarceration. In Georgia, it was just over 24,000. In fact, in Georgia, 93 incarcerated people have died of COVID-19. Both states, Florida and Georgia, are currently seeing significant increases in COVID due to the Delta variant. And at last count in Georgia, less than a quarter of prison staff were vaccinated. So in a way, it makes sense why they might want to stop reporting the data that links the absurd and brutal practices surrounding mass incarceration to the shambolic state-level responses as it concerns COVID-19 writ large. It's all really amazing when you think about it. Then the midst of a resurgent pandemic, as ICUs around the nation are reaching capacity, There are states all over the country trying to limit the amount of information we have about what's happening. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 